For our lesson of the day, I want to read one verse out of Jeremiah's prophecy, the second chapter, it's verse 13. Here again, God's Word. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You have sought us out to be Your worshipers. We thank You that You send us out to be Your missionaries. Oh, Father, we pray that today Your Word would be at work here in this place, in our lives, in our very hearts, that we might be more and more transformed and made more and more like Christ Jesus Himself. This we pray in His name. Amen. May be seated. If you haven't noticed, the church in our culture is between a rock and a hard place. I know a lot of you have felt this pressure. We're being squeezed from two sides. This is the dichotomy the world has forced on us. From one side, we face intense pressure to cave in, uh, to go along with the latest development of the sexual revolution, same-sex marriage. Uh, liberals insist that you either support same-sex marriage and give approval to the homosexual lifestyle, or you will be branded a bigot. Uh, they uh, said that uh, Christians who, who won't go along with this sexual latest chapter in the sexual revolution are enemies uh, because we stand in the way of the progressive agenda. But then from the other side, you've got what you could call hyper-conservative people who, I guess you could say, really are bigots. They really do hate homosexuals. They see themselves as morally righteous and morally superior. Uh, they see homosexuals and other uh, sexual sinners as untouchable and despicable, perhaps the worst of all sinners. They make homosexuals into scapegoats for everything they think is wrong with our culture's problems. And if you won't join in with them in harshly condemning homosexuals, and even those struggling with same-sex attraction, then you are considered a spineless compromiser. So you've got extreme liberals on the one end who say if you don't approve, you hate. And you've got hyper-conservatives on the other end who say if you don't hate, you approve. In John chapter 4, Jesus shows us a different way. Jesus shows us how to combine conviction with compassion. He cuts through this liberal conservative stalemate uh, that defines our culture right now. It's because Jesus doesn't come from the right or from the left. He comes from above. And He shows us a third way. And as His disciples, we want to follow that third way. Saying what no one else is saying. Doing what no one else can do. On the one hand, we will refuse to join in our culture's celebration of sexual autonomy. Uh, again, especially uh, homosexuality. God has clearly revealed in His Word and in His world that such practice is contrary to His will. It is sin. It is detrimental to human flourishing. At the same time, we don't hate sexual sinners. We don't hate those who practice homosexuality. In fact, we love them enough to speak truth to them. We love them enough to serve them. We love them enough to treat them with dignity and with respect. 
and to be to befriend them. And so we can say this is wrong and we can say I love you at the same time. We can say this is wrong and I love you anyway at the same time. The world thinks if you say this is wrong, you must not love. Or if you say I love you, you must approve. Jesus shows us another way here with this woman that he meets at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4. In essence, what Jesus communicates to this woman is you are a sinner. You are really, really messed up. And yet he also communicates to her You are loved. I love you anyway. I will accept you as you are and I will transform you. You're wrong, but I love you anyway. Indeed, I love you enough to forgive you and transform you. I hope that as I preach this sermon, you will listen to this sermon in two ways, really at the same time. As I walk through this text here in John chapter 4 and make some applications at the end, I want you to listen to this sermon in two ways. Ways. First, I want you to think about how Jesus has done for you exactly what he did for this woman. You are just like this woman. Now, you may find that hard to believe. Uh, it, it may be easy for you, especially if you grew up in the church and have lived a, a moral lifestyle uh, throughout your years. You may find it easy to feel morally superior to this woman. You know, if you haven't been married and divorced several times or don't have a live-in boyfriend or girlfriend... But by the standards of Jesus, by by the rules Jesus lays out, the sexual standards He gives us, you are in the same category as this woman. You are a sinner. You are a sexual sinner by the standards of Jesus. You are in need of His living water or you will die of thirst. It's been said there are two kinds of people in the world, good and bad. And actually that's not quite... Right, it would be more accurate to say there are two kinds of people in the world. Bad people who know it, and bad people who don't. Christians are bad people too, we're sinners too. It's just, we're willing to admit that, to admit our badness. We know we've done things that deserve death, and so we know we need forgiveness. It's not just this woman, we know we all need forgiveness. That's why the center of our faith is a cross. More about that later. But I also want you to think of this sermon in another way. Not just what Jesus has done for you. I also want you to think of this sermon in terms of what you're called to do for Jesus. I want you to think of this sermon as a model for Christian mission. For how we are to go into the world with the good news. This passage should not only make you thirsty... For living water, this passage should also make you hungry for mission. That's really what Jesus gets to at the end when his disciples show up. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And then Jesus explains that he wants his disciples to lift their field of vision and look out to the harvest fields and see themselves as being sent by the Father as well. They've got a mission. Yes, Jesus says earlier in the passage, the Father is seeking worshipers, but He is also seeking missionaries. He draws us in to Himself to worship in spirit and in truth, and then He sends us out to harvest the field. We are worshipers and we are missionaries. This woman becomes 
not only a worshiper, but a missionary. And Jesus tells his disciples they must be missionaries as well because the fields are ripe for harvesting. And here in this passage, Jesus is our model how to do mission right. When the Father sends you, this is what it should look like. He's the model missionary who embodies truth and love in himself. He welcomes the sinful, broken woman into his family and kingdom and shows us how we ought to do the same. He deals tenderly with her, but he also really does deal with her sin. In fact, it's interesting to see how gentle he is with this woman compared to how he treats uh, others, like, say, the Pharisees. See, Jesus could distinguish between sheep who had strayed from the fold. He could distinguish sheep who had strayed from the fold from wolves in sheep's clothing. He could distinguish refugees from the world from those who are apostles of the world. And we must learn to do the same. Jesus is very tender towards sheep who have gone astray. He's brutal towards those who would seek to devour the sheep, like the Pharisees. Well, how does this chapter work? We uh, begin here with Jesus traveling. Jesus is headed for Galilee. But verse 4 says He needed to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Now, in that day, you need to understand, it was almost universal practice among the Jews to avoid the region of Samaria. Now, do you know why Jews would avoid the region of Samaria? Because there were Samaritans there. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. They didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans. They didn't like the Samaritans. They considered the Samaritans half-breeds. They were mudbloods. They were the mutts of the ancient Near East. Who were the Samaritans, historically speaking? They were descendants of the Israelites who had been left behind at the time of exile several centuries before, which probably means they were the dregs, sort of the underclass of Israelite society. All the elites, like say Daniel and his friends, were hauled off. The dregs were left behind. Uh, these people eventually intermarried with Gentiles, and they became known as the Samaritans. They were a hybrid race, and they had a hybrid religion. Uh, the Samaritans had developed this religious stew by throwing in parts of the, of the Jewish Bible. They didn't use the whole Hebrew Bible, only select parts of it. And, and they stirred that in a pot with elements of various Gentile religions. And so they came up with this syncretistic religion. It included a counterfeit temple on Mount Gerizim and a form of worship that the Jews rightly considered idolatrous. And that's why the Jews despise them. Verse 9, John sums it up. He says the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So think about this. Verse 4 says Jesus had to go through Samaria. What kind of necessity is this? It was not a geographic necessity. There were well-trod paths Jews were used to taking around Samaria. No, the necessity was missional. He wanted to cross barriers. He wanted to encounter Samaritans. He wanted to show the scandalous nature of His kingdom and His grace. He wanted to take the kingdom to the very place the Jews least expected it to go. Now, when we meet this woman, we find she's already got three strikes against her. She's really already out. She should be. She is a Samaritan. And as we've just seen, the Jews didn't like Samaritans. They didn't have dealings with Samaritans. So there was a strong cultural bias against her. She was a she. <laughs> Obviously, this is a woman. And Jewish 
men would not talk to women, especially a Samaritan woman, uh, in public typically. So there was a gender bias against her. And then she is, as the story unfolds, we find a shameful sexual sinner. She is what you could call a serial adulterer. She's had several failed marriages. She's got several ex-husbands and, and she's living in a sinful relationship right now. There is a moral bias against her. But shockingly, while the disciples have gone into town to get food, shockingly, Jesus chooses to engage this outcast woman in a conversation. We know she was a social, social outcast even in Samaria because of when she comes to the well. John includes details like this not just to provide color and backdrop to the story, but because they, they carry real significance. He tells us it was the sixth hour. It was the middle of the day. Now typically, you know, drawing water in those days was women's work. And typically women would come uh, to draw water from the well early in the morning or in the evening after it had cooled off. This woman comes in the middle part of the day when it would be hot, extremely hot. Why would she do it? Because there would be nobody else around. She doesn't want to run into any of her uh, fellow villagers. Uh, so she comes at a time when nobody else is going to be around. She's an outcast because of the way she's lived her life. Well, Jesus asks her for a drink, and she's taken aback by this. How is it, she says, that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? She realizes that simply by asking this question, Jesus has violated deeply held stereotypes. Simply by asking this question and engaging her in conversation, Jesus has broken through certain well-established boundaries. He's broken through this stereotype of how a Jewish man would relate to a Samaritan woman. Jesus is revolutionary. Jesus is scandalous. He treats women differently than all those around him. He treats the Samaritans differently than the Jews around him. But then Jesus turns the shock level up to 11. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him for a drink and he would give you living water. This woman is intrigued. Sir, she says, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Now stop here for just a minute. Men encountering women at wells is a common type scene in the Old Testament Scriptures. It happens again and again and again. A man meets a woman at a well. And again and again, you know what it results in? It results in marriage. In the Old Testament, if you want to find a bride, where do you go? You go down to the well. And that's where you meet a woman. Right In the book of Genesis... Jacob, you know, Jacob is the topic of conversation here. This is Jacob's well. Jacob meets Rachel at a well. And indeed, he rolls the stone away that's been blocking up the stream so that she can water her flocks. And then, of course, they end up married. Uh, Abraham's servant has gone out in search of a bride for Isaac. And he stops at a well and he finds Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca waters his camels and then he knows she's the one. This is the one. Moses meets his wife at a well in the book of Exodus. 
Uh, he defends uh, this woman by running off the bullies, and then he waters her flocks, and the next thing you know, you know your wedding bells, they get married. Every one of these stories follows the same pattern. In every one of these stories, the bridegroom or his representative travels to a foreign land. And there he encounters a woman at the well. Someone draws water. The girl rushes home to announce the presence of the stranger, the arrival of the stranger. And then it culminates with a betrothal. That happens again and again in Scripture. So if you've got that Old Testament background, as soon as you see Jesus at a well talking to a woman, you know this is certainly going to have something to do with marriage. Right? You know that that's got to be uh, just on the horizon. This is going to be a first date and a marriage proposal all wrapped in one because that's just the way it works in the Old Testament. And to paraphrase Jane Austen, in the Bible, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in search of a drink of water at a well must be in want of a wife. You see it again and again. So that must be, you know, we've got single man and woman here. This must be a betrothal scene of some sort. It must be. In fact, what's interesting, John's already prepared us for this moment. John has already identified Jesus as the true bridegroom of God's people. Back in John 2, he did it when Jesus provided wine at the wedding in Cana to show he was the true husband, the true provider for the bride. In John chapter 3, it's very explicit. John the Baptist says he is the bridegroom. You know, John's kind of the best man preparing Jesus for his wedding. And Jesus is the bridegroom. So Jesus goes into Samaria. Why? He goes into Samaria because he's seeking a bride. Not literally. Okay, you have to say that today because of things like the Da Vinci Code. Not literally, but symbolically. Right? This story is about the Messiah gathering a bride to himself. And it follows this familiar plot line that's been played out in the Bible again and again. When she asks that question, are you greater than Jacob? The answer is, yes, of course he's greater than Jacob. He is the greater Jacob. Seeking out his Rachel. In fact, he, he's not only, you could say, the greater Jacob. He is Jacob's Savior and God. Jacob did, did dig well. Jesus is going to dig a greater well. He's going to make streams of living water flow far greater than all the wells of Jacob. He says to her, whoever drinks of this water will never thirst." Christ Himself is this living water. He's the source of this living water because He gives to His people His Holy Spirit who quenches our thirst and indeed begins to cause springs of living water to flow out of us. So Jesus speaks of this living water. You know, now she's really intrigued. She figures, I've got nothing to lose. So she says to him, Sir, give me this water. Jesus said, if you knew who I am, you would ask me for living water. I've asked you for, for water, but you would ask me for water if you knew who I, who I am. And that's what she does. She says, Sir, give me this water. But then look at how Jesus responds. Jesus says, Go call your husband. Go call your husband. Now, that seems to, to be a jarring turn in the course of the conversation. But actually, it's very much to the point. See, if you remember what we just saw out of the Old Testament, you know it's got it's to take this kind of turn at some point. And so what does she say? She says, I have no husband. 
Jesus says, well, that's true. (laughs) In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. So yeah, you got that one fact right. You don't have a husband right at the moment, but you're hiding your past. And to go any further with me, we had to get your past out in the open. We had to expose it so we can deal with it, this marital sexual history that you've lived out. Now consider here for just a moment this woman's story. No doubt she's a sinner. You can't end up with five ex-husbands without sinning. And certainly she's living in sin right now. She's cohabiting with a man she hasn't married. But there's no doubt she's been sinned against too. Especially in that culture where women were so vulnerable. She was passed from one man to another. And the man she's with now doesn't even respect her or care about her enough to marry her. I have to tell you, this woman would fit right into 21st century America. She would feel right at home in the midst of the sexual revolution. Trying to find meaning and significance in the arms of a man. Trying to find true love. Notice this about her story too. She's had five husbands. Now she's got a pseudo-husband as number six. What does she really need? She needs a seventh husband, a Sabbath husband, a true husband who will provide for her and protect her and give her Sabbath rest. All throughout Scripture, seven is the number of completeness and perfection. Well, here, talking with her is the seventh man, a perfect husband, a husband who will commit to her not just till death do us part, but for all eternity. Now we can see why Jesus answered her request for living water with a command to call her husband. He's going to give her the living water, but first he's got to expose and deal with her sin. Because in doing so, he not only reveals who she is, but he also reveals who he is. He's revealing his true identity to her. See, the truth is, this woman has been seeking for living water her whole life. She's just been seeking it in the wrong places. She's been seeking it in men or in romance or in sex or in marriage. So again, this move from living water to her marital history, it makes total sense. These things are deeply connected. She's been looking for living water in all the wrong places. Okay, Maybe this would be the lyrics for a new country song. I mean, I don't know. All right, but... But that's what she's been doing. She's been doing the Jeremiah 2 thing. Think about what God says to His people through the prophet Jeremiah. That verse we read out of Jeremiah 2. Now my people have forsaken me, the fount of living water. God Himself is the fount of living water. He says, my people have forsaken me, and instead they have made for themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The Israelites were offered living water in God Himself, but instead they dug dry wells, wells that did not produce water. They tried to pour water into cisterns that were cracked and broken that couldn't hold water. This woman is doing just what the Israelites of old did. They were thirsty, but they turned from the one true source of water. This woman is thirsting. She's dying of thirst. She's on the verge of total dehydration. And here, living water stands before her. What will she do? 
This woman, I think, is proof. It's just the kind of proof that our day and age needs. This woman is proof that the sexual revolution can't hold water, so to speak. The promises of the sexual revolution can never be fulfilled. That The way of life given to us by the sexual revolution can't quench our thirst. This woman's had at least six broken cisterns in her life, broken relationships. That's where she's been seeking her meaning and her fulfillment. And Jesus says that's the wrong place to go. These broken cisterns. You need to find living water here. Obviously when Jesus says He's living water, He's claiming to be God. The very God who spoke to His people in Jeremiah 2. What this means is that Jesus didn't bring up her sin just to make her feel bad, just so that she could wallow in her guilt. The point is not merely to condemn her for her sin. He wants her to face her sin. To forsake her sin. To find her sin forgiven. But in order for that to happen, she has to really deal with it. She's got to stop hiding. Jesus wants her to see that the happiness she is seeking, she is not going to find in the arms of any other man. She's not going to find it in marriage or in sex or in romance or any other place. Just like people in our culture need to see the sexual revolution can't keep its promises, the promise of sexual autonomy is really a lie, so this woman must see it too. But she's uncomfortable with this turn in the topic of conversation to her marital history. So what does she do? She does what a lot of sinners do. She quickly changes the subject. She figures, oh, maybe I'll distract Jesus with a theology question. She says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. If you know my whole history, without me telling it to you, you must be a prophet. So let's talk Bible. While we're on the subject of my adultery, where do you think we ought to worship? And that's the kind of turn it takes now. She says, our fathers worshiped on the mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? You know, while we're talking about my five ex-husbands and my live-in boyfriend, where do you think we ought to worship? Where do you think we should go to church? But Jesus takes even this rabbit trail, even this tangent, and bends it to His purposes. He does answer her question. He affirms that the true temple, the God-ordained temple is in Jerusalem. But then He says, that doesn't matter so much anyway because it's about to be obsolete. In essence, he indicates he has come to fulfill and transform the whole temple system. The very issue that separates Jews and Samaritans is about to become irrelevant. This issue of temple location. No longer will God's people worship in Jerusalem. They will worship in spirit and in truth. Now, this verse, John 4, 24, has caused a lot of confusion. Certainly by spirit and truth, Jesus means worshiping in the power of the Holy Spirit and in accord with the teaching of truth found in Scripture. But really the core issue here is the issue of location. The location of worship. Jerusalem is going to be replaced with spirit and truth. In spirit and in truth means Jesus is going to inaugurate a new age in which God's people no longer worship in an earthly temple, but rather in the heavenly temple. The shadow temple in Jerusalem will give way to truth to the true temple of heaven. In the Spirit, God's people will ascend and will have access to the heavenly sanctuary. In the New Covenant, the environment of worship will be an environment created by the Spirit. The environment in which we worship will be full of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. As Hebrews 12 says, 
Jesus says the true address of worship, the true location of worship will change. Now wherever two or three gather in My name, there will the sanctuary be. The true spiritual temple will be there. But, when and how will this great change in worship take, take place? Jesus says the hour is coming. Now in John's Gospel, the hour is always a reference to the hour of Jesus' death. His death will unleash the Spirit. His death will replace old covenant shadows with true realities. His shadow will mean the temple in Jerusalem is doomed. A new temple built by the Spirit, built without hands, is taking its place. In fact, this is really how John summarizes the Gospel. In the first chapter of this Gospel, he says the law was given through Moses. Think of the law as shadow worship that takes place at the temple. Then he says grace and truth come through Jesus. The reality that the law pointed to but couldn't provide are brought in by Jesus. Now this woman begins to suspect who she's talking to. She says, I know Messiah is coming and when He comes, He will tell us all things. In other words, she's really asking, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I who speak to you am He. Jesus unmistakably says, I am the Messiah, the Savior of Israel and of the world. At this moment, it seems the disciples arrive and they marvel. They're astonished to see Jesus speaking to a woman. They marvel at the fact that Jesus has broken through all those barriers. He's overcome all those biases that would keep a Jewish man from ordinarily doing this. But it also seems at the very moment they show up, this woman runs off to the city to tell others who she's met. She says, come and see. That's her Gospel invitation. She says, this man told me all the things I ever did. Now, why does she put it that way? Why does she say, he told me all the things I ever did? The implication is, here's someone who knows all my secrets. Here's someone who, here's a man who knows me. You know, finally a man who knows all my sins, all my failings, my dark story, and yet loves me anyway. That's really what she's saying. Here's a man who knows everything about me. The worst parts of who I am and, 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 and my story. And he loves me anyway. He must be the Christ. Come and see. This is a man who has seen me at my worst and still offered me living water. She had never seen a man like this. A man who exposed her sin, but not to degrade her or to hate her for it, but instead to forgive her and cleanse her and transform her. And so all her shame and embarrassment are gone. She doesn't have to hide from the other members of the village now. Now she seeks them out. She doesn't have to hide from the other residents of the city anymore. She doesn't have to go to the well all alone. She has found living water. So she leaves her water pot behind and she runs off to tell the others. Because here is a man who has given her water that cleanses her and fills her and heals her and makes her whole water finally that can quench her thirst. Now let me put a few things together here for you. And then make a couple of applications, ways to, to think about how this passage can work out in your life. You know, we are all seeking living water. We all seek fulfillment. We all seek happiness. But if you seek it anywhere other than Jesus, let's say you seek it in being known as a really intelligent person or being beautiful, physical beauty, or if you seek it in having money 
or in sex and sexual pleasure. If you seek meaning, fulfillment, and happiness anywhere else, you are always going to end up parched. None of those other sources are really streams of living water that can satisfy you. There's that great scene in the silver chair where Jill Pohl wants to come and drink from the stream, but she sees Aslan and she's afraid to get too close to the stream because she, she's terrified of Aslan. And she says, well, maybe I'll just go to another stream. And Aslan says, there is no other stream. There is no other stream. Jesus is the only source of living water. Why die of thirst? Why die of thirst when you could come to Him and drink from Him? Why is Jesus the only source of living water? Later in John's Gospel, we find out. This woman came to the well at the sixth hour. She was offered living water at the sixth hour. There's another sixth hour in John's Gospel. In John 19, it's the sixth hour when they carry Jesus away to be crucified. He's nailed to the tree at the sixth hour. This woman is thirsty. On the cross, Jesus cries out, I thirst. Jesus took our place on the cross. He experienced our thirst. He died of thirst so that we don't have to. He died of thirst so we can drink living water. When He died, they pierced His side. And water flowed out of the thirsty one. Living water to bring cleansing and healing. See, why did Jesus die? Jesus died in our place. Jesus died to make this woman and people like her worshipers. See, we're all worshipers. We're all seeking living water. We're all worshipers. We're all worshiping something. Whatever you worship, where you go to worship, whatever captures your affections more than anything else, wherever you look to quench your thirst, that's your God. That's what you worship. And Jesus says, look, I'm dying in order to make you a worshiper so you can be reconciled to the Father and so your thirst can be quenched in the living God. Jesus also died to make this woman a missionary. He dies to make her a worshiper so she can know the Father and drink from the fountain that is the living God. He also dies to make this woman a missionary so that the flowing streams of God's love can well up in her and so she can become a kind of fountain or spring himself with that love now flowing out to others. Now I want you to think about what this story means. I want you to think about what it means for your own life, certainly as I said, but I also want you to think about what this story means for how you minister the gospel to others. You start with your own life. You know, if you're in a biblical church like TPC, you're in a place with high moral standards, high sexual standards for what you watch and what you do and what you think about. Those high standards are fully biblical and we don't apologize for it. Now, we also preach grace, but understand grace here does not mean tolerance. Grace does not mean we lower the standards. Grace doesn't mean tolerance of what is sinful. No, grace means sin is sin and God forgives it. Grace means sin is sin and God gives you the power to turn away from it, to put your sin to death. But in a community like ours, what happens when you know you haven't met those standards, especially if it's private sin that no one knows about, as sexual sin so often is? 
the temptation is to keep it in the dark. To assume you're the only one with this struggle and no one would show you mercy or grace or give you help. And so you just kind of struggle on your own and you end up not getting anywhere. Don't believe those lies. When you struggle with some sin, even some private sin you're ashamed of, bring your sin out into the light where it can be forgiven and killed. Don't keep it in the dark. Sin thrives in the dark. Bring it out into the light where you can find encouragement and accountability in the body of Christ. I can assure you, you will find it in this community. You can find others who will help you through that struggle. And know that, so know that your sin does not have to be some stone that stops the flow of living water in your life. The reality is we are all sinners. But Jesus promises to make His current of love flow through us. This story shows us we're all so messed up, Jesus had to die for us. And yet we are all so loved, Jesus was willing to die for us. Your sin is no hindrance to worship. It's no hindrance to mission, provided you bring your sin to Jesus and get it out in the open, provided you run to Jesus continually to drink His water from His well. Don't hide your sin. Get them out where they can be dealt with. But I also want you to think about how you can apply this story to others you might encounter. How can you balance truth and grace the way Jesus does in your relationships? How can you be a missionary like Jesus is here? How can this story shape the way you participate in Christ's mission in the world? Let's take a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. I know some of you have friends who that's where they are. Okay? This is a person who knows homosexuality is wrong, but that's their temptation. The church has to be a place where such people can find hope and community. Now some people in that situation will find their sexual desires transformed over time and will be able to marry. But others will not, and so they will have to live a celibate, chaste life. You know, one of the most distressing things about Justice Kennedy's opinion in the Obergefell case is really the way he dissed single people. The, the, the way he shamed singles. Uh, others have pointed this out, but what, 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 what Kennedy says in his opinion, he says of those same-sex couples who were the plaintiffs in the case, he says their hope is not to be condemned, condemned to live in loneliness. They've either got, got to get married or they're condemned to live in loneliness. He says, marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out only to find no one is there. That's how Kennedy describes singles. And he says, that's why we've got to allow same-sex same couples to marry. Now, is that really so? Are unmarried persons condemned to lives of loneliness? Look, let me tell you, it is not unloving to require Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction to remain celibate and chaste. That's for their good. But it becomes unloving if we don't also say to them as a church, look, we will be your family. We will be there when you cry out in loneliness. When you cry out in loneliness, we will come running. We will be your companion. And we will walk this journey with you. And we can encourage them by saying, look, your life is a testimony that there are more important things in life, greater things in life than getting married. Greater things in life than, than sex and children. 
The ultimate marriage is a marriage we can say to the single Christian, you are going to share in the marriage of Christ and His church. The chief end of life is not to get married, it's to live for God's glory. So you can live a fulfilled, happy life just like Jesus did in His earthly ministry without getting married. But listen to me here. If you are not willing to befriend someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction, who's struggling against same-sex attraction, then you have lost all right to complain about same-sex marriage. The church has to be an alternative family for such people. Let me give you another example of how this might work out in our world. Abortion. Especially in light of the recent revelations that really show us the sheer evil of abortion, the sheer evil of Planned Parenthood, you can bet there are many women who have had abortions or many men who have encouraged abortions and paid for abortions who suddenly realize what they've done. That Yes, they were complicit in murdering an innocent child. With these latest revelations from the, the, the videos from Planned Parenthood, we can't pretend to not know that that's the case anymore. You can't pretend to not know that that's really a child being slain in its mother's womb. Abortion is the product of the sexual revolution. You're going to have many, many women who regret their involvement in abortion. You want to talk about refugees from the sexual revolution? Here it is. If you've talked with somebody who has had an abortion and has come to this realization later, you know there is a crushing burden of guilt and regret. And so we have to ask, is there living water for those who have had abortion? Can Christ's water cleanse and heal? And the answer of the church must be yes, absolutely. Christ was murdered so that murders might be forgiven. That's not the unforgivable sin. Jesus' living water can cleanse you and heal you. I think we ought to respond politically to what's going on. I think it would be great. Uh, if we could defund Planned Parenthood given what they're doing. I think it'd be great if we could get Roe versus Wade overturned. Those are great political goals for us to have. But they're really not the most important thing for the church. The most important calling of the church is to go to those who have been involved in abortion and to say to them, come and see. Here's a man who knows everything you've ever done. He knows your darkest deeds and He's not going to condemn you. He's going to offer you living water. Christ thirsted so you can drink. See, the calling of the church is to make this living water known. We don't hate, but neither do we approve. Instead, we love. And the living water of Christ flows out from us to transform and heal the world and make His forgiveness known. That's our calling. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, forgive us for turning away from You as the fount of living water. Father, may we not dig our own wells, but come to the only One who can quench our thirst. And having drunk deeply from that well, may we go and share it with others. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.